Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, this is an exciting one. I am actually really excited right now to be doing this interview uh, because through happenstance, circumstance, coincidence, and good fortune, I have uh, and I've invited Tony to join me in interviewing the uh, the foreman, the jury foreman for the Danny Masterson uh, round one or the or the trial that just happened, which resulted in a mistrial on Danny Masterson's rape case. And uh, his name is Earl, and we're just going to get right into it here. So, Earl, welcome to my show, and thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed. You're welcome. And, Tony, welcome to my show, of course, as always, <laughs> as the person I uh, is. You were, you were actually there in the courtroom every day reporting on this, giving us transcripts of the testimony and what was happening and on the ground summaries after were the fact. And it was it was a night and day ability to understand that because of what you were doing there. So so kudos and, and big acknowledgments for that. And uh, and, you know, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for having me on, Chris. And uh, yeah, I was just doing my best to put people there. And and since I was there every single day, including jury selection, I can t confirm that Earl is the jury foreman that I saw uh, every day at the Danny Master trial. And and I thought maybe we could start out, um, I mean, just some very general things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I was sitting there, I just thought about what a commitment this was and how much time this took and, you know, what it was like in general, uh, setting aside the specific cases for mm. now, just what it was like in general to be in that group day after day over all this period, how you all got along and, and what you thought of when you realized kind of what this case was all about. We got along really well until we started deliberations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember going October 11th, I was getting ready for jury duty. I was told to report and I thought, I'll probably go down there for a day or two and be done like I did last time. And just so happened on Channel 5 News here in Los Angeles, I was watching TV a little bit, and it says, jury deliberations begin today for Masterson's trial. And I thought, yeah, well, I won't be on that one, thank goodness. <laughs> and I went to court, and then there's like, I think in our group, there's 125 people or so, and they told us we had to be there three weeks or more in order to be in that pool. And um, I already knew my job said I would be able to stay in as long as it took. Next thing you know, I was on this trial and that, that's how um, that started. And uh, yeah, so then uh, I guess the tough part in that first section was just establishing a situation where you could all get along and talk, but but not talk about the case. How hard was that? I mean, you've been on a jury before and you kind of knew the routine. Right. I, that was the second jury trial I've been involved. And initially, when we first went back, uh, like the first few times after the judge had us go to the jury room, just during the trial before deliberation, we really didn't know what to talk about. Um, <laughs> and then... People started talking about 
events that were coming up in their personal life, about sports, uh, things that were going on at LA City Hall, because we could see the, the front steps from where we were. Right. So we just kind of kept light conversation. Then we got interested in food. So we started bringing different things. Everybody brought things. And just to keep ourselves um, kind of busy, but without breaking any of the rules or, or the protocol. Okay, well, Chris, shall we go ahead and get into the the case itself? And okay, yeah, I guess we should probably go in the order that it that it. So so let's start with Jane Doe one. Yeah. Uh, Danny Masterson was accused of forcible rape in three counts, three women. Danny is a well known Scientology celebrity, and he was accused of raping three women who had been Scientologists at the time and are not today. And the first woman to testify is known uh, as Jane Doe one. And just real briefly, she uh, had known Masterson, um, but was not dating him. Uh, they had a previous sexual encounter in September 2002. And then in April 2003, she described going to his house because she wanted some keys. He gave her a drink in a red cup that made her suspiciously intoxicated. He ended up, uh, according to her testimony, th throwing her in a jacuzzi. She felt really sick. He took her up to his bathroom and put his fingers down her throat, made her throw up, and then began a sexual assault that ended up in his bedroom. And she described coming in and out of consciousness and about him choking her, putting a pillow on her face. And at one point, she said he brandished a gun. She tried to reach for it at one point, and, the, and then he slammed the drawer on her hand and injured her hand. She ended up uh, later crawling into a closet of his, making her way out of the house the next afternoon, flying to Florida that same day and uh, uh, being there for about a week and then coming back. So that's kind of the basics of Jane Doe One's testimony. Um, you know, once you got into deliberations and started talking about this case, and this is the one that ended up with two guilty votes, two and ten. And 10 not guilty, Earl, can you tell us what that discussion, how that progressed about her specific case and what the concerns were and what the the kind of uh, things of, that were in disagreement among you? Sure. Um, Jane Doe one had written a letter to the Church of Scientology stating what she said happened between her and Danny kind of asking for permission to make a police report or file charges and or um, maybe the church would step in and help out. In that report, she said that she was in the kitchen. Danny asked her if she wanted a drink. She said, yeah, she went to the refrigerator and that she got um, a juice box and he asked, what are you drinking? She said, you have any vodka? And she made her drink. She, that's what she said in her letter to the church. In court, she testified that she was on the landing to the entrance to the house and that Danny came out and, and gave her a drink. Hey, what are you drinking? She said, you got vodka. And so that he gave it to her while she was outside. So then we started going through layer by layer what was in her police reports and what was not in the police report and what she testified to. In the police report, she testified that she woke up in bed the next afternoon with Danny lying next to her. In court, she testified she woke up in the closet. Um, 
there were some other inconsistencies with her story that credibility and the jurors were absolute. All we had really to go on were the stories that were told by the victims. We had two photos in Jane Doe's number one's case. We had no other evidence. And with one of the main ones um, that came up, when Jane Doe one reported to the police and she talked to the officer, she talked to the detective. On both occasions, she did not mention a gun. In court, she testified that he pulled a gun up and raised it. He never pointed it at her, but brandished it. Right. And during examine doing a testimony by the officer, he said that if a gun were mentioned, it would be in his report. Right. The detective said the same thing. So as we went through and all these inconsistent elements of the story came out, jurors were concerned that not that people could not remember exactly what happened. But if you tell two different stories of the same event, one has to be not true. And that's kind of where that ended up at two for guilty and 10 for not guilty. The other thing that's interesting, uh, I think, in her case is of the three, she's the one who defied Scientology and did go to the LAPD in 2004 and didn't wait 10 years or something. And when that investigation failed, she said she was forced into an agreement by the Church of Scientology and Danny paid Correct. her the Danny paid her $400,000. I, I, some of the people I talked to are a little surprised that her case did so poorly when she's the one who went to the police and Danny paid her a lot of money to shut her up. How did that discussion of those items go in the, in the in jury room? As far as the $400,000, um, the jury didn't weigh that as much as they did her testimony and her written statement and what she reported. Right, okay. Okay. So the big problem for her credibility-wise was gun present in the testimony, but not in the early reports, waking up in a closet versus waking up in his bed or conversing with him in his bed. These, these were the factors that couldn't be gotten past. Those were some, you guess. Okay. And amongst okay. others. Correct. Okay. Um, okay, let's talk about Jane Doe 3. She was actually second in the uh, order. Jane Doe 3 is the one who was in a relationship with Danny for six years that began when right. she was 18, 18 years old. And she testified that after the first year, uh, she was really unhappy with the way that Danny treated her and it was kind of a loveless relationship and that she kind of became used to the idea that he would um, uh, demand sex when she didn't want it. She'd kind of give in. And one of the things that made her case particularly complicated, and this is what I'm hoping you can help me describe how the jury dealt with it, was there were two separate incidents in her case in november 2001 uh she described waking up and danny was on on top of her and inside her and she didn't want to have sex she said she tried to push him off he pushed his full weight down on top of her 
Um, he put he pinned her arms down. She got a hand free. She knew he had this no touch face, no touch hair rule. She grabbed a handful of hair on the side of his head, yanked it over, and that finally pulled him off. He got on the side of the bed, smacked her, and um, spit on her and called her white trash. And this is actually the charging incident from the DA's office that this was, you know, they, they specifically are looking at forcible rape, which in California means overcoming the will of a woman through force or fear. So the fact that she was trying to get him off of her, but he was pushing his weight down and staying inside of her. That's that's how she described it in her testimony. That's followed a month later with a December 2001 incident where the two of them went to La Poubelle, the restaurant on Franklin Street. And um, after a couple glasses of wine, she was getting up to go home. And the next thing she remembers is waking up the next day in, at home in a lot of pain. She went to the bathroom. The and, and she went to the bathroom and discovered that her anus had been torn and, ble and was bleeding. She confronted him and he supposedly said that I had sex with you there. And she asked, uh, was I unconscious the whole time? And he said, yes. So this is the unconscious sodomy of December 2001. This is not the charged incident. And right. this was something that the jury was not told. And we'll get into that later, why, why it wasn't charged. But for, for now, the point is that it was that incident that she said motivated her to finally go to the Church of Scientology, to the Celebrity Center, to the ethics officers, and say, you know, Danny Masterson raped me. But again, the DA charged her on the previous incident, not the December 2001 incident. And that's something that defense attorney Philip Cohen focused on was that, okay, but then when you subsequently told your husband about it, and then you went to the Austin PD and many years later, you were always referring to the rape as being the December unconscious sodomy, right. but the DA charged on the November 2001. Okay, so that's that's what we have with Jane Doe 3. Please tell us how that discussion went in the jury yeah. room. Well, there was a lot of confusion, even amongst us. That's why we had part of, um, see, part of Jane Doe's number three testimony read back because right. the confusion was in, at one point she made a statement about either the November or December incident. And she said to the detective during an interview, I can't give you much about that night because I really don't recall. Right. That was the detective Reyes, I believe. Correct. And one of the jurors said, if she's claiming that all of these things happened and she gave very meticulous detail, how can she then turn around and say she doesn't recall? Or she, it's kind of foggy. So we started talking about that. And there were jurors that were saying, if she was in a relationship with him for this long, and she said that it's happened so many, many times before that he had intercourse with her when she didn't want to. And there was some other information. Um, there were times she said he would just get upset and walk away and would not talk to her. For a couple of days. So all of those things were discussed. And in the end, that was five in favor of guilty, seven in favor of not guilty. I won't say which way I voted, but there was some difference of opinion. And 
people were not willing. Well, we all listen, but at the end of the day, people did not change their mind. Okay. Well, I mean, it's already obvious to me that you paid very close attention to the details and we're back there talking specifically about the details of what you heard on the witness stand. I, I'm, you know, I'm very impressed that you know this. Now, the only, the, the, so I was going to mention the, I, I don't think, and you can tell me if this ever came up, the jury was specifically not told why the December 2001 incident was not charged. And that's because of California's definition of forcible rape, which is, again, overcoming the will of the woman through force or fear. That doesn't we have a that. Matter of fact, we wrote them down on the board in the jury room, so I remember that. But did, so did people realize that the reason why the December 2001 couldn't be charged was because she was unconscious the whole time? So no, she was, we, we did not realize that because um, the question was, I mean, several jurors asked why did they not charge him on this one? Right. There were so many references. Matter of fact, when she called the rape hotline, the question she asked was, if you're unconscious and someone has sex with you, is that rape? Well, that wasn't the charge case. Right. There was another um, item where she, when she, um, I think initially when she went to Austin PD, she was telling about the November, I mean, the unconscious sodomy incident. Right. So very, I think the defense attorney did a really good job of confusing most on the interwoven of both yeah. episodes that happened. Right. While we were in deliberations, there were still jurors in there that did not understand that was she talking about the unconscious sodomy or the forceful rape that she was awake for when she right. said, I don't really recall much about that night. It's kind of foggy. Right. Okay. And that's why we had some of her testimony read back because we wanted clarification. As soon as we got done with that, we came back and we were hung. Okay. Yeah, I was very quick. That's the last day, which was uh, Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday afternoon after we hit November thirtieth. We were back in the jury room for about 25, 30 minutes, and everyone felt they needed, they had what they needed. We voted again. It was the exact same as it was before. And we went around, and each person had a chance. And I asked, I said, listen, is anyone here willing to change the way they feel based upon what we just saw? Don't all answer at once. We'll go around the table one at a time and let it, each individual say what they're going to say. Went around. Everybody said what they needed to say, what they felt, and it was the same vote. Well, it sounds like the methods you were using were really, really good. Mm -hmm. So the third person to testify was actually Jane Doe, too. Correct. Um, this woman was an actress who knew Danny socially. And they had uh, been brought together by a mutual friend one night at a bar. And she said Danny was staring at her intently right. and went up to her and sort of demanded her phone number to be able to text her. And she said, you know, it was kind of aggressive, but she thought maybe he thinks that's his way of flirting. And then uh, after that, he began texting her saying, you're going to come over. You're going to get into a, a bathing suit. And you're going to get in my jacuzzi. And again, she she said, no, that was just too aggressive, but she didn't. Um, she thought maybe that was his way of flirting. And and she described saying to him, I will come over, but I'm going to put down some boundaries. We can have a drink. We can talk where, you know, and that's all that's going to happen. And she she said she made it very clear that they were not going to have sex. So she went over to his house and he, uh, she testified that he immediately gave her this big glass of red wine 
And she was saying, well, you know, this beautiful house on Hollymont, can I get a tour? And he was just insisting, drink this, drink this. So she drank from the glass of wine. And then, you know, sometime later, 20 minutes later, started to feel suspiciously intoxicated. And they ended up in his, they finally did end up in his jacuzzi and were making out. And she's, you know, described that this was kind of more than she had bargained for. But, you know, as long as it wasn't crossing her line, um, and they ended up uh, back in his shower. I might be, it's been a little while, Earl. I'm trying to remember everything. And uh, they ended up they in his shower. The first and then the shower. They went into the shower and he was fingering her and making out. And then suddenly he put his penis inside of her. And she was really shocked. And she said, no, this is not what I wanted. And they moved to the bed. And the way she described it, she was trying to control the situation that, you know, She'd allow a certain amount of making out and that kind of thing um, as long as, you know, they, he didn't do that again. And then she said, he said at some point, he finally said, okay, that's it. Threw her over on her hands and knees and began attacking her from behind in a really violent way. She talked about him pounding her like a jackhammer. And the whole time she kept saying, no, 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 I don't want this. No, no, no. And she was in a lot of pain. Um, then also after that was done, she still stayed there for quite a few hours and they went back to talking. And when she was asked about that, she talked about how she was trying to categorize what had just happened, that this was so shocking to her. And, and she ended up leaving almost at dawn the next day. And they continued to have some contact after that. A few days later, he had not called her. So she called him and kind of blew her off. And, and she uh, felt like, wow, okay, this really did happen, what happened. And she described over the years trying to understand it and, and 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 sort of categorize it for herself. And eventually, she she decided that yes, this really was a rape. And she she had told several people over several years, and we heard from some of those witnesses. So that's generally what Jane Doe too described. Uh, please tell us how that played in the jury room. Okay, um, at the beginning. We went through layer by layer of the, of the whole story. So going back to where they met at the restaurant and the staring, and she indicated she felt uncomfortable about the glare and the, the uneasiness about it, but she gave him her phone number anyway. Um, so we started with that. And the Jane Doe number, she's two, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's two. She had a phone conversation with her mom before she went over there, and she told her mother, according to her own testimony, that she was excited to go and see him and that she was looking forward to it. Um, and during her, her testimony or her interview with one of the detectives, she said, I don't, want, I don't want to be the hoe in the mansion. No, I don't want to be the hoe in a jacuzzi with the asshole in the mansion. Something right. to that effect. Right. That she did not want to be disrespected or what was another word she used? Taken for granted, I believe. So she she had all these ideas set up that and, and the idea she also testified that she did not want to have sex. And at one point, she did testify say she was okay with the fingering and the kissing and the heavy petting going on. And when he told her to go to the bed after he penetrated her in the shower. She said that it was kind of like an order. So she right. did. She went to the bed. Um, and Jules had 
an issue with that. If he had penetrated her against her will in the shower, we, that's a we, I'm not just me, but others believe, right. why would you go get in a bed, someone that just raped you, if you believe that's what happened? Mm -hmm. um, then after they got in the bed, they had the incident that she described as, um, that's it, turn over, and he started having sex with her from behind. Um, and then after that was done, they stayed in bed. She testified they went out on the balcony, they talked, they stayed in bed more, and she stayed until like 6 a.m., I believe is the time she gave. Right. And uh, then she went back home. <clears throat> she also said that she had expected a phone call from Danny um, in the next day or two. Like, they had talked, said, hey, give me a call, let me know how things are going. And then she had this statement that he didn't call her back. She called him mm -hmm. and she wanted to know if what had happened was, I'm not sure if she used the word rape, but she wanted to know if it was, we'll say rape, or if it were something else, maybe the beginning of a relationship. She wasn't sure. So she said that she was processing what had happened. Right. But when she did not get the phone call and she called him and the group that I was with, the jurors, were, they, this is kind of the sequence they put in. She didn't like the staring, but she gave him the number anyway. She called her mom. She was excited to go. She went. Things didn't go the way she exactly planned for them to go. He didn't call her. She called him back. He blew her off. And now she's in this state of mind that she's going <clears> to <throat> get revenge or um, give him more than what he asked for because she didn't get the romance that she wanted. It was talked about several times. She wanted a romantic evening. She wanted romance, but not necessarily sex. She, she said, we can talk, we can have wine. And she didn't even say anything about the other things, just those two. But at the end of the day, when all of those elements were put together, the jury at eight, not guilty, four guilty, right. believed that she was manipulating that situation because she did not get the romance she wanted from DM. Okay. Okay. Huh. To the point where it was just not enough to see that the act itself of what had happened there was a forcible instance of sexual intercourse, regardless of her intent. Because I'm kind of thinking, well, there's an act there that regardless of she whether she wanted or didn't want a relationship there, with. There's a, yeah, there, there's reason why um, the jury kind of went down the path that they did. And that was, again, the in, a, in the opinion of eight people, the unreliability of possibly being under the influence of something more than alcohol and not remembering things exactly as they were passing out, coming to. Um, there was enough reasonable doubt there to say maybe everything didn't go the way exactly the way she said it did. Okay. During some of those those times where she didn't really recall what happened, and then on others she recalled exact details, the jury didn't fully believe that you could do both at the same time. Mm. Mm. That's an important piece of information. Okay. Okay. Um, 
One thing that I was also present at the preliminary hearing, which took place the previous May, that was the first time these three women got a chance to testify. And it was a different defense attorney. The previous defense attorney, Earl, was really pushing a theory that this was kind of a plot to take down Scientology. And it was very heavily about Scientology uh, being a big part of what the defense was saying. Uh, Cohen took a different tack and really stayed away from Scientology. After hearing you talk about all three, it sounds like the Scientology component was not very much part of the conversation, or how would you describe it? Extremely minimal. We we did not talk about Scientology in the sense um, of why the delayed reports or uh, being afraid. <clears throat> we understood. It was explained to us that if in, in the Scientology church, if he would declare a suppressive person, you could lose your family, your friends, school for your daughter, um, all your relations, things could change because they would not have contact with you. We understood that. Okay. But when each victim went to report, and they did at different times, we took it from that point. We, we did not hold the church <clears throat> accountable for their practice or non-practice or whatever it was. The judge often read an admonition to us. Right. The evidence is allowed for consideration to the, to the listener, not based on whether it's true or false. Mm -hmm. right. And we just did not take the Church of Scientology um, at a negative or positive to determine what we believed in the victim's case. You have to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, we were asked to decide unanimously on something that happened that was solely based upon each individual statement. Who they told it to, who they shared it with, it was still their information. Basically, a hearsay for the second person. Knowing that we had one bit of evidence, two photos that proved kind of like it was, it actually was opposite effect of what they thought it would show. So, with that being the case, we really came down to credibility. And that was a starting point for us because we had nothing else. We right. had no rape kits, we had no eyewitnesses, we had no photos, we had no, we had nothing, just statements. So, we, I don't know if knowingly or not, we did not hold the Church of Scientology uh, responsible for delay or all the other things. Because at some point, each individual decided that they would go forward and report. Right. So when whatever time frame that was, we did not hold that against anyone. Okay. Okay, interesting. So let me just go through a few characters <clears throat> there. Uh, just in general, how did the jury how did the jury feel about Judge Charlene Olmedo? They liked her. And what I mean by that is I heard comments, um, oh, the judge, she seems like a, a nice lady. You know, we had, she was very courteous. For jury service, I think she was courteous because she was like, you guys, okay, you guys want to go to lunch early? Is it okay if you go early? Um, be back on time and then I'll order you back. But she was always, in our opinion, I think most of us, she was just 
professional and courteous with us and, and never like, even if she makes, she could have, she never really demanded anything of us other than that we just follow her instruction. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller. We thought that he could have done a much better job at presentation. I'll give you a couple examples. Mm -hmm. One is with the detective, what is it, Reyes, I think is the, guy, the guy's name. Detective Javier Vargas is the male. Vargas. We went, I think it was on a Thursday, and he was testifying, and Cohen asked him in cross, have you had a chance to review the transcript and or the video audio of these interviews? <clears throat> Excuse me. And he said, no, I just re re reviewed my um, my notes and uh, notes from the uh, summer reports. So he started asking questions. And Cohen would say, well, would it refresh your recollection if you take a look at the transcript? He'd read it. He'd answer the question. Maybe next question he might get a little bit right. Then next question, would it re refresh your memory or refresh your recollection? He'd have to go back. Came back on that Monday and same thing. The Cohen asked him, have you had a chance to review the reports or the transcript, not reports, but transcript and or audio video of the, of the interviews? He says, no, I have not. And we as a jury felt that that was, he, he was not meeting his due diligence as a professional lead investigator on the case by not taking the time and go review the information that's gonna be very important to him. This, this was very important to a lot of people, the victims mm -hmm. and to uh, Daniel Masterson. So we felt that everyone should have given every effort possible to do their best to see where this came out. We didn't feel that way about Vargas and we didn't feel that way about the DA because Mr. Mueller, I remember doing voir dire. I was asked one question by him and he said, do you think you could be fair and open-minded with a victim who may not remember all the facts of things that might've happened 20 years ago? And I said, yes, I could be fair and not be judgmental. I would be open-minded to listen to someone who may not remember all the facts. Mm -hmm. But what happened wasn't that. With Jane Doe 1, it was two totally different stories in several, several points where she woke up, the gun, and there was one other one. So had he said, this happened 20 years ago, and in the police report, the victim said she woke up in one place, and then in her testimony here in court, she said another place, but the important things are this. Had he been forthcoming in that way, it might have been different. But <clears throat> we felt that he did a... He could have done better. Let's just put it that way. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, I also noticed how different he was in opening versus closing. In opening, he seemed very tentative, and then in closing, he seemed more forceful. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, I see. I see what you're saying about that. Okay, Philip Cohen, defense attorney. We thought that he was really good at his presentation. And one of the jurors said he was really good at smoke and mirrors. And he's one of the guys that voted not guilty. I mean, guilty. And we really deliberated quite intensely about some of the tactics that Mr. Cohen used. 
that we had a, one lady in there that was she was she had a marketing background and she recognized some tactics, if you will, that were kind of marketing based. How he would start out with one thing and then stop and go, oh, by the way, and be on a whole total and it's like a gotcha kind of moment. And we felt he was very competent and he represented well. He asked pertinent questions and he is probably the main reason we had doubt because he was able, he was able to articulate very clearly all these differences in the stories, the uh, contradictions for each case. And I know when we went in, one of the opening conversations one of the ladies had was, we weren't there, we don't know exactly what happened, but we owe it to society to do our very best and come up with the very best that we can. And we all agreed with that, it was, it was very true. But Cohen was very good at what he did and, and the jurors were very receptive to what he had to say in the way that he delivered the facts of the case as we knew them in court. You said that um, D.A. Mueller could have set up that situation a little better uh, from the beginning uh, by being a little more forthcoming about uh, what you might be doing <clears throat> later on. Are there any other suggestions that you or the other jurors voiced about what uh, might be different on a retrial? What do you think would be more effective on presenting this evidence? Other than the one we talked about, let me just think about that for a moment. Um, Dressed off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any, but um, I know our jury really zeroed in on credibility. And when we found things to be, and one other thing you have to keep in mind too, on two of these charges, there was an alcoholic beverage, suspicious alcoholic beverage involved where things weren't recalled, but then when it was so much in their favor, it was recalled very vividly. And then one of the Jane Doe said she passed out seven times and that she had a phone call with someone for a minute and 42 seconds. Right. But to not remember some other very important details, that's not very credible. In our opinion, it wasn't. Right. Okay. And I think if the DA had saw all of these different things going on and brought them out on himself, or at least I can't, for the, I can't understand why if he talked to, let's say, take, for example, Jane Doe number one, and they read her report to the church or her letter to the church, they read her report from Officer Slagle, and they read what, and, and they got getting her ready to testify. Why would they not go over that with her and say, this is what we have, this is what you said, we're good. But she goes in and tells about a gun that no one ever heard about. You got a detective, a police officer, that are saying there was no gun mentioned. That, that is really, really hard to overcome as far as credibility. How can you not mention a gun involved in this case to two different law enforcement officers? Right. And we did not give more credibility to the officers, but there's two of them saying that in their line of work, that would absolutely be written down. Did you notice uh, in uh, D.A. Mueller's questioning of Schlegel 
for example, that he seemed to be implying that a gun was mentioned and that Schlegel just failed to record it. We, th- we saw that. We observed that, yes. But also uh, in the cross, Cohen asked him, he said, if, if there had been a gun mentioned, would that be an important item? Yes. Would that be in your police report? Yes. How many years have you been doing this? X amount of years. So you have experience. And so you have to look at the facts as they are. You don't have to read into it or add anything to it. We use common sense and experience. Would two officers forget or not mention this item if it were mentioned to them? And we thought probably not. Okay. I mean, everything you've said so far, Earl, seems just really, um, uh, I I like that you're talking about the evidence in front of you and Mm. you all considered it and talked about it. Let me ask about some sort of uh, peripheral things because we couldn't help wondering, uh, the media, we were in the back row. I don't know if you noticed, but all the reporters were in the back row. And uh, so so we were always kind of curious about what we were seeing. Right in front of me and to my left was the very large Masterson family section, and then Danny Masterson himself. Was there any discussion at all about Danny's appearance, Danny's sort of composure in the courtroom, uh, the size of his family, uh, uh, you know, component there, or any consideration about them at all? Yes. um, Jurors... (laughs) We walked down the hall every day there for about five and six weeks or so. And going and coming, when we get back in the jury room to deliberate or even just during the trial, jurors would say, that lady's staring at me or that guy's staring at me or they're kind of really, really gawking at us. And it's like, well, that's kind of come with the territory. You know, they're going to be out there every day. So, and then even in court, in in our um, jury deliberation room before and during deliberation, conversations were that lady's always staring and she's always she's always looking here and there was one that really it actually changed one vote it had nothing to do with the people outside but it had to do with something that happened at the table um let's see was she in she was number two jane Doe number two. two was testifying okay and we had an idea of what she was going to, because, you know, we, we had, she'd been there the day before, I think she had, was there two days and we kind of knew where she was going. And what I mean by that, she was, had more testimony to do. And so we had a break. Someone just said, Oh God, did you see that? And I was like, no, I said, but we can't talk about it yet. So let's just wait. And it's okay. And then, so when we finally got to deliberations, he was able, as I said, what were you talking about? Remember the day you said, did you see that? I said, he goes, well, the lady that was with Cohen, it was the lady that she had curly hair. Um, she was at the table pretty much every day with Cohen and, and Daniel Masterson. When Jane Doe number two was testifying, she said something to him and they both kind of smiled. And the juror was offended that they would find some reason to smile during this person's explaining this traumatic thing that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And he held that against him. He changed his vote because of that. Okay, so so Danny Masterson and uh, the other two people that were there at the table besides Philip Cohen were not not the lady. I know who Cameron Goldberg was. Not Karen, Gold, Karen Goldstein is the attorney, but the other Goldstein. woman was their uh, legal, their paralegal. 
Yeah, the paralegal um, lady. That that right. lady. So par- So the paralegal and Danny shared some little. She thing said that made something them to smile. him, and they, they both smiled. And that changed a vote from that changed a vote from not guilty to guilty. That's very interesting. Um, well, and that's what they, he said. Now, I'm not. I'm sure not in its totality, but it was right. very very heavily weighed. Yeah. And then hallway. Any other hallway interactions that might have affected any of the deliberations at all? No, not at all. None of the jurors ever said anything to us. We never said anything to Tim, as far as I know. There was no. Just jurors realized that people were looking at them. Right. Even while we were in court, you're sitting there. All you have to do is look in front of you and listen. And of course, you see what's out there. Although hey, I didn't me- see you, I was more focused on looking at the DA or the right. Well, let me tell you, it wasn't easy. I mean, I rode up in the elevators with you guys every day, and it was, you know, I just, I'd see somebody uh, like you, and I'd be like, oh, I got to look somewhere else, because, you know, they, I knew that, you know, we were going to share the same space, but that you and I, or you and, and the other jurors and I, absolutely could not speak. And uh, I, I think, I think we were all pretty conscious of that, but, you know, it would get back to us that certain interactions had gone in the hallway, and the Masson family was always in the hallway during deliberations. Yeah, I guess some of us were curious if that had affect the deliberations at all, and you're saying it didn't affect the deliberations. We didn't care. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't mind that at all. Um, the people that were there, they were pretty resilient about doing their civic duty, and they they weren't intimidated. Believe me, they were not intimidated by anyone. They went with what they believed to be their case, and that's what they supported. True. Um, I should have brought this up earlier, but the expert, Dr. Mindy Mechanic. Yeah. Uh, was explaining that uh, when a woman is raped by someone she knows or is in a relationship with, they will have a very different reaction than being raped by a stranger. Uh, and I, it, it appeared to me that what the DA was trying to do was, even though Mindy Mechanic was not talking specifically about what had happened at Jane Doe 1, 2, and 3, she was describing things that were very similar to what that had happened to them. Right. Was was her testimony used very much in deliberations? The short answer, no. One of the jurors, um, one of the ladies said, if she had interviewed these victims, we could give more weight to what she has to say. But she was speaking from a General. study that had been done with college students that were given credit and also that whatever her information was that they could find another study that said just the opposite. But the important thing is we did agree. We listened very intently. We took a lot of notes and we understood what she was saying. But then again, we went back to the credibility of witnesses, what they said and that evidence. That's what we had to to really that was the whole anchor of our decision was based on exactly what each victim said and the things that they said against some of the things they said. We listened to Dr. Mechanic, but we did not give much weight to that at all. Okay. Another issue I wanted to bring up with you was the the makeup of the of the jury. When when the trial began, there were 12 jurors, jurors and seven alternates, and almost right away. Uh, a woman on the jury said she just couldn't take it and left and was replaced by an alternate. And then ultimately um, there was only one alternate left after it by the end. Can you remind me, were you on the original jury jury, or did you start out as one of the alternates? I can't remember. I started out on the jury. Okay. Went to state eight and stayed there the whole time. Okay. And um, 
uh, you know, obviously some of those replacements took place during the evidence phase and, and would not have affected uh, deliberations that you know of. But then we did have uh, two people replaced right in the middle of deliberations because two of the jurors were ill. How do you think that might have affected things to, I mean, it, it couldn't have been fun to have to start over from scratch, right? Well, you know what? Let me just say something about that. When we went back into court and the judge said, forget everything you've talked about, start over. First of all, that's not even possible to forget everything you talked about. Yeah, right. We tried. We we started, we went back in and we started from square one. We started at Jane Doe one and we went through the whole process again. We did what she asked us to do. Right. Um, with that in mind, you know what? Do me this favor. Ask your question again. Because I, okay. I, I also I want to make a point here because uh, I, I see a lot of readers that bring up this question. Let me just make sure people understand. When the trial began, there were 12 jurors and seven alternates. Over the next five, six weeks of testimony, all of those alternates were there for every bit of testimony. And so when somebody on the jury needed to be replaced, there was somebody that was ill. There was somebody that, you know, there were problems that the alternate taking their place had seen every bit of testimony. I know there were some people that maybe aren't familiar with our system of justice and thought that the alternates would have to be brought in and read transcripts or something. No. Okay. So my question is, um, during deliberations, there were three, two and a half days of deliberations. You guys indicated to the judge that you were unable to reach a verdict on all three. We took the week off in Thanksgiving. We came back. We, Monday and we ended up with two new jurors that day. Two jurors were out for covid and two alternates were put on at that point, and Judge Almeida asked you to start over from scratch. And my question is, how much of an effect did that have, do you think, on the way the vote ended up ultimately? Well, one juror, I know for sure, that was replaced, um, she had voted guilty, and that seat remained, in a, uh, excuse me, <laughs> she voted not guilty, and that seat remained, I say that seat because that's what yeah, it was. Yeah, sure, right. It, that one remained at not guilty. Okay. On the other seat, I think on one, that that particular person had two different opinions. On, I mean, one was guilty and, and two were, no, two were not guilty, one was guilty. Okay. And that seat went to all not guilty. Okay. So it's so um, okay. So small, small effect. I think maybe one one vote on one of the verdicts may have changed from guilty to not guilty. Right. Sounds like yeah. Okay. Um, uh, okay, Chris, you got any other? Yeah, uh, I do. Um, I'm curious about this. You know, you and I spoke, of course, before this interview as well, and um, and then you know you've repeated what you told me about. Uh, Ms. Mechanic, the expert witness, right? And they only called one. I think they had three on their witness list, if I remember right, Tony. Um, and I'm sorry, say that one more time. The defense, the defense had three oh, the defense experts three. on their witness list and didn't call any of them, right? Right. And the prosecution only had Ms. Mechanic then? Yeah, yes. Okay, so my question was, Clearly, there was this idea because of the cross-examination of Ms. Mechanic that, oh, this was, you know, some, she was basing her expertness or her opinions on, you know, this study that was done on college students and they get paid. And so 
the cross did a, an effective job of nullifying her testimony based on, you know, kind of marketing tactics, really, as I agree with what you were saying, what that, that juror was saying there, right? Because it's spin in order to invalidate scientific data. So my question is, do you think from your position and the vibe in the room and all the data that was considered and how it was considered, that further expert testimony or different expert testimony of that nature could have made a difference or or could have been presented in such a way that it could have had more of an influence on the <clears throat> jury's thinking as to why these women were acting the way they were because of this relationship thing and because of the influence of Scientology. No, to answer your question, no, I, I don't think any further information from another professional or doctor or someone in that field would have made it any difference. And here's why. Yeah. Most of us that were in the room trying to decide the fate of this case one way or the other, once again, I'll go back to we went with the facts in the case that were given by each victim individually. And there was debate. I mean, it wasn't 12-0 across the board. There were there were debate. You can see the numbers. Right. And it, each case was a little different. But we really spent a lot of time, and I mean, meticulously, we went through. We had the, the fortune of having one lady that took notes, and I think they were probably just as accurate as the court reporter. She was really, really good, really, really fast. So wow. we had a lot of information that we could share. And I don't think it would have made much difference um, if they put someone else up there because at the end of the day, we were trying to decide something that we were not there for, nor was anyone else. But we had to go on the statements given by the victims based on what they said in several different venues, whether it was police report, statements to the church, or things they testified to in court. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, can I ask you, um, early in the, I guess in his opening, Defense attorney Philip Cohen uh, made a point to say that because, uh, you know, Danny's very well-dressed, well-groomed person, you know, as D.A. Mueller said. And uh, uh, but Philip Cohen had said, you know, you're going to hear some really bad stuff about this guy. You're going to hear. He's not a good really, boyfriend. He's an asshole. Yeah, I remember that. Really, really bad behavior. You're going to hear about some really bad behavior, but you're going to have to make a decision about whether these, you know, uh, rapes had occurred and. Uh, I'm just curious. I mean, I think one of the challenges juries have in a case like this is looking across the room at this person. And I'm not I'm not asking, you know, whether it was proved beyond a reasonable doubt. That's obviously it wasn't for you guys. But did was there some discussion about whether that person you saw in the room was capable of these acts that he was being accused of? Not, not in that sense, but um if you remember, there was a fourth non-charged yes. victim. Jane Doe 4, right. And so in our general discussion, there were jurors that said, guys, look at this. Four women accusing the same person of the same type behavior, similar circumstance, some involving beverages, some one not. Um, and then one thing that got said that was kind of stood out, this word jackhammer, mm -hmm. which several victims use, the very specific word, like a jackhammer. And during testimony, it was 
told to us that Jane Doe number two had conversations with Jane Doe one and three, and they all talked about their cases together. That was not good for the prosecution. Mm. Um, the other part that came out that was interesting to us was that, and it was very quietly put in the admonition section of the jury instructions, the very last page, and the admonition was, although there may have been a civil complaint filed in this case against the police department, it is not to, and it went on to say, but when we started reading that, then we came to realize, we went back and remembered during testimony that Jane Doe number two had made a complaint against the detective for asking about almonds and sending smiley faces and a couple of other things she thought were inappropriate. And one juror even said, well, maybe that's why the detective wasn't really prepared because maybe he didn't really care because she was made a complaint against him. It was like, well, Maybe, maybe, maybe we have to go on what's in front of us. So let's go through that. But those things came up in discussion. And when you're talking about reasonable doubt, people use every bit of information received to decide right. how they're going to vote. And brought, that was pretty brought, key. You brought up Jane Doe 4, but you didn't really, how, how did people view her? I know she wasn't, her incidents weren't charged. But uh, how, how, what was generally the discussion about her in the jury room about Jane Doe she, it, it would have, if, if we had to vote, it would have been high, not guilties. And the main reason was after her, um, the first incident where she said she was forcibly raped, and then she's walking down the street, and he picks her up in the car, and then she, he comes over. She, he's downstairs. He gets out, hey, I'm here. Um, I got a flask of whiskey. Let me come up. She lets him upstairs and they go through the same thing all over again. And we thought a reasonable person would not do that. If someone, if you think someone raped you, you're not gonna have them come to your house and come back in your house, spend the night and, and have sex with them again. It, it just, it didn't pass the smell test for a lot of jurors. It just didn't. Okay. How many times do you remember? Because I saw through going through the transcript and testimony that we had, right? Because I don't have the court records. How many times did the term coercive control come up? Because I only saw it once. I remember it one time. Yeah. And not even defined for what it is as a repeating pattern of coercive behavior that, that creates a mindset. That Believe me, there were people. So I'm wondering about the exposure to that. There, there were several people on this jury that absolutely wanted DM to be found guilty. And they were adamant about it to the point where sometimes people's first names changed. In the people's testimony, first, you mean? Pardon me? In the testimony, people's names changed? No, no, no. I'm just saying people were adamant. They're like, you know, cuss word, so on and so forth, you know? Oh, got it. They were cursing each other out in the jury room? Is what no, not cursing each other out. It's just like, damn it, I said, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It was heated. It got heated very, it got, very much. It got, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it means anything, but but the detective that Jane Doe 2 was referring to about filing a complaint Was the, the first detective. Was the, the female, the first detective, yeah. Detective Reyes, not Detective Vargas. Right? Correct. And I think... Uh, D.A. Mueller. That was, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was said outside of your 
hearing that you went into the jury room and then Mueller and, and Cohen would fight over things. And one of the things they fought about outside of your hearing was the idea that the women felt that the first detective, Reyes, did a poor job and the second detective, Vargas, did a better job and that they had actually complained to the LAPD about the first detective. And so the two, the DA and the defense attorney kind of went around and around about how much are we going to let the jury hear that there was a big dispute about this. And in general, I thought they kept it away from you. And I wondered about uh, whether that if they should have done that, I wonder if they should have clued you. It, it was it was in a stipulation, and and we, what we did, one of the first things we did when we went to the jury room. Now, the judge had read the entire jury instructions. One of the ladies, when we went back, she goes, "Listen, we have a very important responsibility. So I would like to say or motion that we read the entire jury instructions over again, and I would like also each person to take a turn reading." And we did that. Wow. And we went through the entire document. It's like 40 pages, 35 pages, and the stipulations and the admonitions. We read every single page. And what was really good about that is that there were things in there. The judge read it, but, you know, after about, sometimes after about 10, 15 minutes of somebody reading to you. Right. It starts coming across like blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. But that was very effective. That that helped us. Okay. Okay. Well, my main, you know, concerns from my angle, my end of things is, you know, how much information y'all were given. And it's, and I'm not at all judging you guys for, for the decision-making process you engaged in. It sounds like you were, you were passionate, you were in there, you were interested, you were doing the work that is expected of you. And I couldn't ask anything more. I'm just upset that the prosecution didn't present a better case because there were things that could, could have been brought in or I believe should have been brought in that could have made some of that irrational or unreasonable behavior maybe make a little bit more sense. I can't speak to, you know, some of those direct contradictions. That's, you know, it is what it is. But I think that um, I'm a sight guy. So I'm I'm in people's heads all the time, right? And and, you know, unreasonable behavior is the order of the day around predatory people. And so that's, I wish that kind of stuff could have been explained more. I don't know, based on what we're talking about here today, whether it would have made a difference or not, but I would have liked to have seen it anyway. Were there like any said, other? There, there, there was one guy that thought, he said, hey guys, something bad happened to one of these people. It's not like four folks are going to come in yeah. and nothing happened. But at the same time, then there were other people say, hey, well, listen we have to go based on the evidence that was been given us. So we yep. can't go on our, our, our gut or, you know, our, our guess. And we would ask very direct questions to one another. What, what makes you say that? What show us what's in the evidence that gives you that vibe or that feeling? Why? And we went through that a lot. I mean, it sounds like uh, everyone got a chance to say what they wanted to say that all, all the evidence was very thorough. I think the thing people worry about in juries is you end up with one or two people that are really unreasonable and are not participating. And that's kind of the nightmare scenario of a mistrial is you've got, a, you know, whether it's for acquittal or for conviction, the point is you've got somebody who's not cooperating. But it sounds like you kind of got people on both sides and that everybody was cooperating and, and participating. Everyone participated. And just like with any group, some more than others, but one thing that I, I had an opportunity to do as the foreperson was um, 
when we went in and they said, okay, we've got to select a four person. And one of the guys next to me said, I nominate this guy. And someone said, well, I nominate this, this girl or this lady or this guy. And said, okay, well, I, I got this guy. And so I got selected. And one of the first things I asked, I said, well, this is very difficult and very important information that we're going to share and things we have to do. But I would like to set some ground rules if we can agree. And it were basic things like when someone's talking, we all listen, no cutting each other off. And, and to the very best of our my ability, we were able to do that. But when you sometimes you get in a place where someone answers, they answer back and they're going back and forth. And it's not controlled. Well, I would say controlled, but it's not mitigated anymore. And I have to say many times, I would say, um, guys, 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 hold on, hold on. It's her turn. It's his turn. Right. And everybody will have to take a deep breath. But I think we did really, really good with that. And it really had to do with the people that were there. Um, they were respectful of one another. It didn't take away anyone's passion. Out of the 12, I think probably nine or 10 of the people were very well spoken. And then the other few people, they, they spoke well and they, they represented themselves. But sometimes they waited a little longer than others. So they, they would put their hand up and wait their turn. And I mean, we did that. It was, um, I think we did really, really good. Any other scenes? Conversation control to the extent that we weren't all in there yelling at the same time. Right. Any other scenes you want to share with us? Any particular incidents during the deliberations that you haven't told us about? Um, after the trial was over, and it had been declared a mistrial, and that's when um, the judge asked me in open court to tell what the votes were. Right. We were done, and we went back to the deliberation room, and we were there, and it was almost like a, a, a celebration of sorts in a sense that I could feel the relief, and I could see that in the other jurors. I mean, smiles came back, and people were like, hey, you know, good job, and, you know, I didn't mean that, and, you know, we were it was like becoming a small family unit, almost like that, that kind of feeling, right? But before we went out, it was those not guilties and those guilties and no one was changing their mind and it was kind of tense. Right. But after that, um, when we went back and then one of the deputies came back and said, hey, um, the attorneys, both sides, defense and prosecution, would like to know if you guys could hang around for a minute and talk with them. Voluntarily, if you'd like. It's not mandatory. And um, every person in there, all 13, said, I'll stay. And we did. After about five, seven minutes of talking with them and answering their questions, and on both sides, Mueller, I think her name was Anson, and then um, Cohen and the other lady, Karen. Goldstein, yeah, right. Yeah, they were all, they all four were back there. And they were asking questions and we were answering. And then uh, the judge herself came back and said, hey, guys, we'll give you five more minutes because the deputies are ready to escort these guys downstairs. And, um, you know, we're not going to be able to wait. So I thought that was interesting that they came back and we talked to them. I, I think the attorneys found that very, very useful. Uh, when once I, I stayed, when Cohen came back into the courtroom, he said to Judge Olmedo, I've never had that opportunity before. I want to thank you. That was very, very valuable. And uh, when I interviewed, uh, asked Mueller for a statement a little later, he also said, 
how much he uh, felt that that was useful uh, to them. Uh, I have to ask you, Cohen's Daily Fashion Show, did this have any effect yeah. on the jury whatsoever? <laughs> One of the guys that was, he, he sat right next to me during the deliberations, and he said, do you know that this guy has never worn the same suit? And I was like, well, I hadn't really noticed, but... <laughs> It was kind of funny, but yeah, he was he was very much aware of his his uh, attire, his hats and the ties and the shoes, and that New York accent. I don't know if he's from New York or Boston, but he's got an accent from somewhere back east. We thought we we caught on to that as well. And do you think that had any influence on the deliberations at all? No, sir, I don't. Um, I can tell you after spending those five and a half days in there going over all the information that were given to us. 12 people in there, um, no matter which 12, the first 12, the second 12, the last 12, we all deliberated, deliberated on the information that was presented in court, the jury instructions, the admonitions, and that's all we went on. Now, mind you, some people took it guilty, some took it not guilty. But we stuck to that script pretty much. Um, and the DA could have done better. I, I absolutely think so. And um, I didn't tell him that doing that question and answer thing, but I did say to him and Ms. Hansen that one thing that would have been better in your favor if the detectives were more prepared in their testimony, because we're we're trying to get credibility on every single thing that we can. And their testimony was very important, but they weren't prepared. I told him that in that little meeting and he thought that was helpful. Do you want to, so I'm sorry, real fast. Do you also want to share that elephant in the room question? Cause I thought that was really interesting when they came in and asked about that. Was it Cohen or Mueller who brought that Co up? Cohen, Cohen. It was Cohen, Cohen. Cohen. He had some kind of a, a diagram of an elephant that had about Scientology or something. Yeah, he had that plus um, the boyfriend being bad and different things like that. That was an, an, an opening argument, the big blue elephant on the screen. Right. But he, he asked about that during that question and answer um, after the, the trial was over. And he asked if the, the elephant in the room, excuse me, had anything to do with um, how you all deliberated or your decisions. And it had to do with the Church of Scientology. And I told him, and one other lady answered as well. But I said to him that, just like I told you guys, once we were given information, we just went based on testimony. Whenever the, the victims reported is when they reported. We did not hold that against them or against the church or against anyone. We went strictly based upon what they said and what they shared with others. One of the other things, well, we're at this point now. There's one other one I remembered about um, Jane Doe number one that came up that we I didn't mention, but yeah, yeah, it's okay yeah. Well, um, when she went to Florida, Clearwater, Florida, um, for her father's birthday, right? She had written in her initial, well, I don't know if it was in her initial report to the church or in her report to the police that she had bruising on her body when she flew down to Florida and that she covered up with, you know, Rachel said she has all, all kinds of clothes and scarves on. And then she later testified that. She didn't get the bruising until five days later. 
And that, that was another one of the ones that, mm. and at the time I had all my notes that I had taken, I had them all lined up and everyone else did too. So that was just one of the other reasons why the credibility, that's why it ended up two to 10. Right. And I noticed that uh, Cohen really hammered that 2003 report that Jane Doe One wrote for the church. And I was kind of surprised the DA didn't make a bigger deal of the fact that she wrote that with the ethics officer at the Church of Scientology, Chris. Mm-hmm. Chris knows Chris knows what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So to use that as sort of the definitive version of what happened, I think is really problematic. And I don't know mm-hmm. why Mueller didn't make a bigger deal about that. Of course, uh, Earl, you don't, you know, Chris and I and a lot of others were were interested about there were other witnesses that would have brought more Scientology and that were not allowed, but you know that that might have been a slightly different trial. Mm-hmm. But um, that that was interesting to me. And, and tonight you've you've said that that 2003 report was very important. And I, I wonder if maybe there's a retrial. They need to they need to challenge that report a little bit more. I think. Yeah. Did that come across to y'all that she that that report had been something she had been writing? with somebody looking over her shoulder and correcting and changing and even editing? Yeah, to the best of my recollection, the answer is yes, because I think there was one point where, I forget the person's name, it begins with letter S, the lady, the ethics officer. Oh, Scott. Um, um, Melinda. Well, uh, Ju- Julian Schwartz oh, Julian. was the, was the one on her. I remember, but um, at one point during the testimony, it was said that you can't use the word rape yeah. And so we were aware that this report was done with um, some direction to change words or to change certain elements of it. Right. But at the same time, I think the DA would have done the case much more justice, so to speak, had he gone through that a little bit more, explaining to us sometimes. Uh, different the statements were different than what was testified to in court. Yeah, and also the importance of someone else being there telling uh, Jane Doe one what she could and could not say. Although we remember, I remember about the word rape not being used. It, it didn't come across to me at that time that the gravity of that direction or that that overseeing, so to speak, how that might have directed the way that letter was written. Right. That's exactly my problem with the prosecution's case was the failure to create that, construct that picture for you guys of what these women's lives were actually like under Scientology and with Scientology and why that's important because of Danny Masterson and his status as a Scientologist. And these things in the real world actually do matter, but... Y'all weren't even we we you know there was so little that of this that could get in. It was, and then I remember the other thing um, when they were talking to one of the victims, and she said that she that Danny was an upstart and that she was yeah. less important than he was in the church. Yeah. And that stood out because we people did talk about that. Well, how how is it that someone could be less important? And was like, well, okay, we go back to the admonition that this information is being allowed based so that the the listener can. Um, have an understanding of the credibility of the, of the person saying it, not for the truth or the, the false of what was being said. Right. So we couldn't, we didn't go into that much more, but I think if 
the DA had several fronts where he could have done a much better job of presenting information. It may have been different, but based upon what I experienced and the jurors that I worked with, and that worked with me, Harvard, that's where we ended up based on what we had in front of us. Yeah. Do you, do you have any questions for us, Earl, at all? No, um, just that I hope answered some of the questions you wanted to hear the responses to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the only reason I did this is because of my daughter. If it weren't for her, I wouldn't be talking to you. And she did. She just asked me, Dad, um, I know this guy. And I said, honey, for you, I'll do it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I, again, I'm going to thank you for for taking the time and, and helping us with this. And I'm telling you, you know, right, wrong, good, bad, whatever, you know, outcomes are outcomes. This interview is going to help people to understand what happened and why and remove a lot of conjecture that's going on right now. And for that reason, I am so happy that you have agreed to do this. And thank you again. Yeah, I I, I feel the same way. It's that, you know, I was there every day and I was just trying to write down what happened. But of course, we couldn't see what was going on with you guys in the jury room and a lot of speculation arose about what you were paying attention to or what you weren't paying attention to. And I'm just really reassured that this jury took this job seriously. You obviously set up some ground rules so that you'd be able to discuss things civilly. You looked at the actual evidence that was presented to you in the case, everything outside the Masterson's, what was said in the hallway, all that stuff was just not something that entered into it. And you came up with a hung jury, which is unfortunate, but you know, that's, it may be because of the way the prosecution laid out the case. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm just really really. But you guys that- know from talking to me, there, there are probably a good four or five points where they could have done better in their presentation and their sharing of information with the jury, even given the admonition by the court. And there was nothing else we could do but go with what was given, you know? Right. Right. I totally appreciate it. I think I just really am glad that you guys took it so seriously. And and I know it must have been a lot of hard work. Well, I'll tell you what. um, um, After we were dismissed the last day of deliberation and we were the hung jury, I was in a service. I've done a lot of other things, but I had, I just felt totally spent. I was exhausted mentally. And I, I described it like, Arguing for three days in a row, eight hours a day, full-blown argument, pretty much how I felt. I was just relieved. I, I just needed a break, and I was I was glad that it was over. Yeah, I mean, I remember when you spoke up, when the judge asked you to speak. I mean, I have to say that you uh, spoke really um, strongly about, look, this is how it is. I mean, <laughs> it was very clear. <laughs> I yeah, the thing she, she was job. not maybe expecting the, the answer, but when those folks told me in there, we're not doing anything different or we're done. Right. Make sure that if she asks you any questions that you you say that. And I said, okay, I understand. Now, mind you, I, I might've been a four person, but I was really doing what they asked me to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just got a chance to say it, but that was all of us speaking. Right. Cool. Well, Earl, again, thank you. And uh, we're just going to wrap up now. This has been incredibly informative and helpful. And uh, folks out there, I hope you feel the same. 
I hope that this has helped clarify for those of us who are following this on a day-by-day, paying attention to all the details, hoping against hope that we would see some results that we didn't end up seeing, but now we know why. And now we can prepare better for next time. And believe me, with the Church of Scientology and with the stuff that goes on there, there will be more times. And we'll have <laughs> the civil case. So, uh, and a potential for a retrial of this case. So we're just going to have to see what happens as we sit here right now. You know, we don't know, but let's, uh, let's see what happens and let's be better prepared and, uh, and do this better next time. Thanks for coming around and watching. See you next week. Bye-bye.